Welcome back to another edition of the Living Jewishly podcast with the Rabbis Rubenstein. I'm Rabbi Marcus. Hi, everyone. I'm Rabbi Rachel. It's so nice to be with you again uh, right here, right now on Election Day, America. (laughs) Yes, it is American Election Day, midterms today. Temple of Aaron is a polling site, so there's lots of activity here. Lots and of- it's exciting because Rabbi Rachel said to me, oh, there's not going to be a lot of people. Don't worry. It's a midterm election. It's not going to be crowded. And, of course, there's like a line out the door at Temple mm-hmm. of Aaron. Um, and it's because Minnesota is such a, a great state to be in where we really care. And every, What is it, the highest voting percentage of the highest amount of the population that votes, right? I don't know. You you told me that, so I don't know where you read that, but that it's, would be. I, I read somewhere. It's it's somewhere a fact, um, All right? <laughs> possibly that the this is like the highest percentage of the population that actually votes. We in take our all civic elections. duty very seriously. It would be a very Minnesotan thing to take civic duties seriously, which is why I love this place here. It is cool, though. I mean, I was thinking about a week ago today, we had a blood drive in our social hall. And then uh, over the weekend, we, of course, had Shabbat Kiddush in our social hall. And then we had our day of loving kindness, or we were doing lots of good deeds in our social hall. And then today, the, uh, the polling places in our social hall. It's just cool to see this this space really be such a holy space in so many different ways and kind of hold our American selves, our Jewish selves, and and doing real good in the world. It's a, it's exactly what a synagogue should be, I think. Yeah, I mostly like to see the people coming into our synagogue looking around like, wow, I've never been into this building before. Know, <laughs> I've I, passed it by many times. but I know, I will say that next year for a polling site, we should work with the sisterhood to make sure the gift shop is open. I see a lot of people looking in Ooh. those windows and, and window shopping. That's the best of, uh, the best of times, window <laughs> shopping. And it's also, uh, of course, getting colder finally. We had like a nice long fall here, which is really nice. Oh, we had such a beautiful October. It uh, was really beautiful, but it is certainly feeling like it is turning. I pulled out my winter coat today. I did. Uh, I got my earmuffs. <laughs> my 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 pigskin gloves, which are very 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 warm. I'll have to bring up our kosher to episode again. Are you allowed to wear pigskin gloves? Everybody always yells at me like, "You're wearing pigskin pigskin gloves. How could you possibly do that? That's not kosher." I'm like, "I'm not eating my gloves, so <laughs> don't think it's going to be a problem." Uh, we started lighting fires in our fireplace. It's very cozy. Although we did, I posted a picture on Facebook of the fire in our fireplace, and and someone from our uh, New York congregation commented, it's 70 degrees, why do you have a fire lit? So I guess it's still nice and warm in New York, but uh, here it is turning to Minnesota winter. Hashtag frozen chosen. Frozen chosen. We're selling merchandise that later, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what are we talking about today? <laughs> we are talking about a very uncontroversial kind of neutral topic. Neutral milk, yeah. Ne- uh, it is called Israel. Israel, the state of Israel. Yes, we are excited to really talk about Israel today um, and, and the, the miraculous state of Israel, the, the time we live in, to live in a time when there is the state of Israel um, and sort of uh, what we wanted to really speak about today um, is really the sources of our, I call this the sources of our Zionisms, because I think that Rabbi Rachel and I have, we're both very much Zionists, um, and what that means, by the way, is we support there being a state of Israel and, uh, and uh, work towards uh, keeping it. 
but Ra- Rabbi Rachel and I have uh, relatively somewhat different Zionisms, I would say, and uh, we wanted to really show those here and, and sort of where our support of Israel comes from and why, uh, particularly. Um, and uh, we also wanted to talk about different kinds of Zionism that exists and the different kinds of categories, because I think some of this discourse can help us talk about what's sometimes a a very, very, uh, unfortunately hard conversation and a hard uh, hard topic to talk about. Well, I mean, to take a step back, why are we talking about this today? Why did we choose this week exactly. to, do our, to do our Zionism podcast? Uh, some of you may know, some of you may not know that Israel just held an election last week. It was the fifth election since 2019, I believe. Israel runs on a parliamentary system, so they don't necessarily have elections every four years the way we do here. They can have a vote of no confidence or the coalitions of the different parties that are holding the government together and giving one prime minister a majority of support in the in the parliament. It's called the Knesset. Um, if they if one party decides to pull out and they no longer have um, have a majority, then then they'll have to run elections again. And so it keeps happening. It's a very tenuous state of the government in Israel, and so they just had an election. Do you want to talk about some of the results of that election? Yeah, um, so the results of that election um, are, are in some ways uh, partially uh, frightening, I think, to a lot of people, especially in America, uh, is, is that particularly a, a new party uh, really was elected the third most powerful party in the Knesset. I believe they have 14 seats. I think that's right, yeah. 14 seats, a party called Otsma Yehudit, um, uh, uh, Yehudit? Oh, it's my Yehudit, yes. The Jewish Power Party uh, would be the best way to translate. And the, the, the person in charge of that uh, is a man named Itamar Ben-Gavir. And unfortunately, um, Itamar Ben-Gavir uh, very much has some red flags of racism, I would say, towards Arabs that we find within uh, his past uh, and, and, and the politics in which he espouses today. And uh, things like having a portrait of uh, the infamous Israeli terrorist Baruch Goldstein um, from ni- from the 1994 Hebron massacre, where he went into the cave of Machpelah and into the, into the worship space there and killed 29 uh, innocent Arabs, uh, a man who was uh, completely invalidated by uh, the Knesset, by the IDF, barred from the IDF for his radical, radical views, all of a sudden now is in charge of the third largest party in the in the Knesset, in the Israeli Congress. Um, and, and, and that's, that's particularly frightening, I think, for both Rabbi Rachel and I, uh, that kind of, uh, very, very radical to the right politics. But I think, I mean, I think even pulling back a little bit, you know, I don't, we're not going to be speaking so much about current events in this conversation. Um, but I think, you know, Anytime that uh, something causes Israel to be in the news, whether it's um, a war or terrorism or an election, um, there's always a lot of discourse about Zionism and anti-Zionism and pro-Palestine and and free Palestine and all of these kind of hashtags and and phrases get thrown thrown around a lot. And I think we see that part of our role as rabbis is to have a conversation and and try and educate a little bit about, all right, well, here are two people who call themselves Zionists. um, And what does that look like? What does that actually mean underneath the surface? And, you know, we're having this conversation now because Israel is on our mind because of the election and, um, you know, kind of deepening, deepening the understanding beyond the headlines of what's happening in the current events about really what is behind our relationship with Israel. Right, right. I mean, 
you know, when, when something happens and it makes you sort of um, be frightened for a second about the direction um, in which something is going in, it makes you question and say, okay, so why, why, why are we doing this anyway? And, and what are our founding values of why we're involved in the Israel project in this in the state of Israel in this in this experiment of a Jewish state that we're we're into right now and returning back to those core values again helps us to crystallize you know and in a better way what is the path forward and 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 how should we behave as American Jews at this moment um, so the first thing I really wanted to talk about um, is types of Zionism because I think we don't talk about this enough. Uh, and and really, this is this is extremely important in terms of the history of Zionism. So the question really is: is like why why do why do we want an is why do we want a Jewish state, right? Why do we want a state? And and by the way, defining what is a Jewish state is a very very complicated question. Does that mean it's a state that goes according to Jewish law, right? Wouldn't support that. So we don't we don't we're not we don't go we don't want that. But what somewhat some uh, a state that has an identity of being Jewish, right? So why would we possibly want that? And there's many reasons that people sort of come up with that, um, and it really crystallized into I would say four different kinds of different ways of thinking about this. Of course, there's a millions of different ways of thinking about this, but four really help us kind of have good language about this. So the first really is is political Zionism. Um, the idea um, of of the fact that Jews need a home, need a secure place to go because of anti-Semitism, truly. Um, and the fact of the matter is that, that anti-Semitism is always going to exist, um, and therefore, um, or at least the danger of anti-Semitism popping up again, and so therefore the Jews need to do whatever they can do to make sure that they have a secure place to go in case of that happening, or a secure place to be um, that we can make sure that anti-Semitism is never part of the government system there, um, and that Jews are never, uh, you know, uh, taken that way or harmed by anti-Semitism there. Yeah, and some people who have some familiarity with the history of Zionism might be familiar with the name Theodor Herzl. Um, he would be kind of the the patriarch of political Zionism. Um, and some people may have heard that when the uh, notion of a Jewish state was being thrown around in the 1800s, someone threw around, well, what about if we gave the Jews part of Uganda and could they go to Uganda and create a state there? Um, and the reason why that even would be a conversation would be because of political Zionism. If you divorce re- the religion out of it and the history of our connection with the land of Israel, and you're just trying to create a political home for and a safe place for Jews around the world, then maybe it doesn't matter as much where it is. Maybe it could be in Uganda or in Texas or in Russia. It could be any, you know, it could be anywhere where we could get some land. Right. And, you know, Jews of all different kinds are like this. And and by the way, non-Jews as well um, are are political Zionists. Famously, Theodore Herzl was not a a religious man at all. Um, And most political Zionists were not not religious Jews. They were rather rather relatively secular Jews and Jews who um, really were part of also European society and the societies they were a part of, but they just no longer felt it was safe in their home countries or in the places that they were, and therefore they needed to establish a safe place. That's that's really key. Um, the next kind of uh, Zion, and next kind of Zionism uh, for us that I, I think both Rabbi Rachel and I are are very connected with is is what we call cultural Zionism. Um, cultural Zionism is a belief that um, the Jewish people need a homeland where um, they could fully. Uh, 
experience their culture in a way that's not uh, stopped or, or segregated or held back in any kind of way, um, where things like poetry, um, Jewish music, Jewish poetry, Jewish art, Jewish music, um, Jewish expression of all different kinds, um, basically to be a Jew in a free way um, without being told I, I can't act a certain way or I can't um, express myself in a certain way. Um, and also to, by the way, not be watered down by other cultures, right? So if, um, to live in a Jewish culture where Jewish, Jewish culture is allowed to grow, um, without stopping. Um, unlike in other countries where, um, Jewish culture might be, uh, very much integrated with the, the, the culture of like, like American Jews, right? Our, our Jewish culture is not just Jewish culture. It's American culture. It's mixed with American culture. Well, so you need to ex- establish a place where Jewish culture can sort of exist, um, and, 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 and be uninterrupted in that regard. Um, and Israel is needed for the full expression of, of that, that identity. Right, and the thinker most closely associated with cultural Zionism would probably be Ahad Ha'am. Right, Ahad Ha'am was a great, an unbelievable and a great writer, um, and and really has became the hero of this kind of voice of cultural cultural Zionism. That uh, and and it's really a a very beautiful idea, and 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 very very important uh, uh, to 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 Rabbi Rachel and I as well. Um, and very much is, is a major part of our Zionism as well. Um, uh, so thirdly, and I would say this is the last category of Zionism, um, is, is religious Zionism, right? Um, r- religious Zionism amongst the, in the 1897, the first Zionist Congress, where um, all of the, the Zionists of Europe and Africa, the North Africa, and Jews from around the world basically came together in, in Basel, Switzerland, and formed this first Zionist Congress in 1897, um, these were the three different kinds of party, three different kinds of streams of, of thinking about Zionism is this political culture. And lastly, religious, uh, the religious, um, Zionism was actually one of the smaller categories, uh, smaller, smaller political parties per se of that first Zionist Congress. What religious Zionism really is, 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 is the understanding that God, um, uh, commands us, God desires us, the Jewish people to be, uh, in the land of Israel, and that God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people, and therefore the Jewish people need to be there and establish a Jewish home there, um, and and hopefully a Jewish government and a Jewish state, um, and that is commanded and desirable by God, and therefore we work towards achieving that, um, and that the understanding of that, of course, is then which Israel are you talking about, right? What exactly are the borders of the land of Israel? And that would be, that's going to be something that, of course, is argued about, but it's quite large, right? The state, the, the state of Israel. Um, and it really goes back to biblical times of exactly what that was. And I think within religious Zionism, too, is the fact that there are certain mitzvot, certain commandments that we can only do within the land of Israel. Sure. Yeah. Um, and the idea that if our goal in life is to be able to live a life of mitzvot, then the fact that we are some that we can only do in the land of Israel means that we are living a more full religious existence um, within the land of Israel. And it's an interesting conversation, the kind of crossover between religious Zionism and cultural Zionism and how those, um, you know, how those influence one another. Um, right, right. What are some, a couple of, just a, a couple of example mitzvot we can Right, so right I mean, the, we just finished the uh, 5782 was a Shemitah year. If you've been reading, if you read any of my Aronian articles from last year, hopefully you're familiar with the idea of Shemitah, the idea of of uh, letting your 
your fields lie fallow um, every seventh year, and that is a mitzvah that is a commandment that is only applicable within the land of Israel. If you are a Jewish farmer in Minnesota, go ahead and plow your fields every year, um, <laughs> although apparently it's good to let them rest for the fields, but the mitzvah, the commandment, is only applicable uh, within the land of Israel. So that's kind of a classic example, a very land-based mitzvah. Um, and then, you know, we can get into the whole idea of trying to build the third temple and all of the other things that kind of go around um, of trying to kind of reestablish what Jewish life was like at the last time that we right. had a political control over the land of Israel, which was thousands and thousands of years ago. Well, only two thousands. <laughs> yes, 100%. Uh, and, and the last category... Before, re- before you get to the yeah. last category, I just want to say that one other category that we are not going to discuss today, but certainly is worth discussing in an American context, is Christian Zionism. These are all Jewish, Jewish manifestations of Zionism, and I think that there's a big category of Christian Zionism that certainly um, has roots in their own religiosity and their own political ideas. We're not going to be discussing any of those today, but I think it's worth at least noting, putting to the side, but noting that there is a whole other kind of realm of Zionism. Right. We say in Judaism, we need more research on that because uh, this is something that's definitely become a phenomenon as of late and uh, certainly needs more research. Um, the last category I want to mention that's really not Zion, not Zionist, actually the opposite of Zionist, is anti-Zionism. And uh, this is very important and an important misnomer uh, that is found uh, throughout, you know, in, in many pockets of American Jewry, um, is is the understanding that uh, most ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, were not Zionist through the 1800s and through the 1900s, and up to this day are, really are not Zionist. Um, the belief is uh, amongst ultra-Orthodox Jewry is that we can't establish a Jewish state until the Mashiach comes, until the Messiah comes, and miraculously sort of uh, zaps us all to uh, Israel, um, and that all the Jewish people will will come there, and miraculously the Third Temple will, will be rebuilt, and you know there will be peace throughout the world, and 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 it's kind of this utopian idea of of when the state of Israel will be established. And mm-hmm. until that point, our duty as Jews is just to wait. Um, is to wait for the Mashiach. Yeah, there's actually a part of the Talmud that um, details an agreement that the Jewish people make with God not to go back to settle the land of Israel. So, I mean, they have pretty strong religious proof that that we're not supposed to be doing this. Yes, and and this is, of course, argued over continuously. But it was strong enough where most ultra-Orthodox Jews really did not want a part of this state of Israel. And really, the idea was, the understanding was that the state of Israel was not going to go according to Jewish law. So, um, for for ultra-Orthodox Jews, and then... There was no, there was no, unless we were kind of reestablishing the Davidic kingdom, right, with a hair of the uh, from King David. It, the Jews, uh, for them, the Jews had no nothing to do with this. Um, and for, the, to clarify, yeah. the heir of King David, not his hair. Did I say hair? Well, it's spelled hair. It's spelled with an H, but it's not. Hair, it's hair. not the hair on his head. It's the heir, the, so the descendant. We'll do an episode <laughs> episode at some point of how we say different things differently <laughs> and we argue over it continuously. <laughs> So that's that's really religious anti-Zionism and and, and things that are we're very familiar with today. By the way, uh, are the f- most famous example is, is Satmar Hasidim are for the most part completely anti-Zionist and and they're very vocal about it. But almost every ultra-Orthodox sect of Judaism today um, is is pretty much anti-Zionist. Most most of them don't talk about it very often, but uh, are anti-Zionist by doctrine. Um, so. Uh, very important misnomer. Um, so if you see someone who is, if you see a, a particular group that's ultra-Orthodox, you can 
basically understand that they are not might not might not and probably are not an outright supporter of the state of Israel, especially in a political way. They might be a supporter of the the Jewish people living there, because bear in mind that the majority of Jews of the world now live in the state of Israel. Um, Used to be America, now it's the state of Israel. Um, And so therefore, we support those Jews who are over there, um, but they just might not support the political state. Uh, famously, on most of my books, my Hebrew books that I have, it says it's not published by Midinat Israel in the state of Israel, but rather it's published in Eretz Israel or the land of Israel. And the reason that they say that is so ultra Orthodox Jews will buy the book, even and and because they will not buy something where it says the state of Israel because they don't believe in the state of Israel. It, it is such an interesting experience if you go to an APAC conference or you go to some sort of pro-Israel conference and you'll see um, kind of the people you might expect to be out there protesting and. And then you'll see a group of ultra-Orthodox Jews protesting as well. And it feels um, it feels a little bit jarring the first time you see that of, you know, you expect that the Jewish people are in support of the Jewish state and the Jewish homeland. And, um, and to see that experience, I remember... Um, back when I was in high school, there was a very famous um, delegation of, I think it was Natori Kart of, of ultra-Orthodox Jews who went to Iran to meet with Ahmadinejad, um, and they were both united in their hatred of the state of Israel. It was just a very, you know, these are just very, very jarring images to, to see in the world. Yeah, and very complicated. And of course, they, they hate Israel for completely different reasons, um, uh, but but still, they, they unite around their hatred of of. The, the idea of the state. So this is really the different types of Zionism we wanted to talk about today. But we also, really what this is really about, I just wanted to kind of, we wanted to give you the vocabulary to talk about different kinds of Zionisms and why um, someone would support it, the state of Israel. Um, and so we want to tell our stories, our particular stories of sort of how we encountered Israel when we were young and sort of the evolution along that journey and, and the continuing dynamic evolution in our journeys um, with our connection to Israel. I'm Rachel. Sure. I mean, I mean, I grew up at day school in a Zionist home. My first trip to Israel was when I was five years old. Um, and my mom used to joke that I would think that Israel, Israel, granted, is a very small country, but she thought I would think it was like the size of a, of a neighborhood because I would get car sick. And so they would give me Dramamine on the bus and I would fall asleep on the bus and then wake up somewhere else. So we would be in the north, we'd be in the south, and I would just sleep on the entire bus ride in between. Um, but I was, I can imagine you doing that, by the way. <laughs> I can totally imagine that. But I was five years old the first time I went to Israel. Um, I certainly don't think I had a, a very nuanced view of Israel. I really enjoyed the chocolate, um, and we kept kosher, and so I never could have gummy bears uh, at home because they're made with gelatin. And then all of a sudden, I went to Israel, and there were more gummy kosher gummy candies than I knew what to do with. So that was a great part of Israel. There, you know, Hebrew on the signs, uh, certainly positive association with Israel, but as depthful as a, a five-year-old can view, uh, can view a new place. Um, I continued to go to Israel. We went several other times. I went um, when I, I had my bat, uh, bat mitzvah trip to Israel. I went again when I was 16 with my family. Um, so we went several times to, to Israel. I went um, on USY pilgrimage to, to Eastern Europe and to Israel when I was in high school uh, with several people from the great state of Minnesota, I should add. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, I kind of, you know, had this, um, I was learning Hebrew at my day school, so I had kind of, a, you know, an interest in going to this place where where the signs were in Hebrew and I could kind of understand um, a, a totally foreign country. 
Um, but then, you know, as I, as I matured and as I got older, and especially kind of my senior year of high school, we went on a trip with our senior class to Israel and started to kind of dip my toe into the, the uncomfortable parts of Israel and started to kind of figure out, well, if I hold these liberal political values um, and the people that I share those values with disagree with me on Israel, then what do I do with that kind of cognitive dissonance? Like, how do I, how do I reconcile um, the, the idea that the people that I agree with on uh, everything politically in America, I disagree with everything politically in Israel? And kind of how do I hold both of those? You know, I remember saying once, like, all of the adults I knew would never watch Fox News until it came time to coverage of Israel. And then they would say that's the only reliable source. And so I was kind of like holding to myself, like, how do I reconcile that? Like, how, how is that? How is that the case? Um, and then I went to college um, and uh, encountered even more um, you know, discomfort around like who who am I allied with? Who who do I um, who do I share values with? And and what is this kind of history that I have to um, unlearn from from what I was taught in day school? And what kind of facts do I have to complicate as I learn more about the world? And that kind of continued. I, I studied Arabic in college mostly because I wanted to better connect with the with the full with the full breadth and depth of the political situation in Israel. I was already fluent in Hebrew from from my day school education and I wanted to be able to kind of hold what, you know, quote unquote the other side um, by studying Arabic. Um, but then I went back to Israel, <laughs> back to Israel in rabbinical school. Um, and now I was going in with a completely different lens. I was going in more as an adult and as a rabbinical student, as someone who was there uh, with no other responsibility but to live and to learn and to immerse myself in, in the culture. Um, and I spent months living in Jerusalem and encountered kind of a, a whole additional realm of Israel. I did go on an encounter trip and I did kind of continue to... Um, What's an encounter trip? What's an encounter trip? An encounter trip is as an organization that takes um, different groups, Americans, Jews, uh, to uh, uh, to the West Bank to spend time in the West Bank with um, with Arab families and to kind of encounter their their narrative to um, to provide a counterpoint to to the some of the narratives that were taught in Israel um, and in Zionist spaces, um, but. So that was part of my experience, but the but the vast majority of my experience living in Israel at the time was was really cultural. You know, if we're looking at the different types of Zionism, I mean, of course, it was religious, and that you know, I was in rabbinical school, but it was really cultural. It was immersing myself in. Oh my gosh, like the food in Jerusalem has gotten so incredible. There's this like incredible kosher food scene in Jerusalem and every day, every day there's different art fairs and music festivals and it just feels young and vibrant and like it's creating this whole um, Jewish culture that is completely different than the Jewish culture that's being created in America um, and and wanting to connect with that and immerse in that and what I think what it most did that that last trip to Israel was complicate kind of my understanding not so much of Israel but of the American Israel relationship um, you know I I'd, I'd been taught kind of um, 
subconsciously that the American-Israel relationship is that America is powerful and American Jews are powerful and it's our job to like lift up the less power our less powerful sister in Israel and to support them and give them money and support them politically and try and kind of hold up this this less powerful sibling that we have in the Middle East um and what I kind of experienced in this trip was that I think that paradigm for me and I think in the world has, has really shifted and that it's, um, it's much more, I think, the relationship between um, Israel and American Jewry is more of a cultural exchange, that we are creating an incredibly rich and vibrant Jewish culture in America, and Israel is creating an incredibly rich and vibrant Jewish culture in Israel, and we have so much to learn from one, one another and so much to exchange with one another, and I still, you know, I do think, uh, you know, that I we want to influence um, our, our Israeli Jewish culture in terms of our values of egalitarianism and some of our liberal values, and, and they have so much to teach us about their kind of really rich uh, connection with the lands, with the language, with the music, with the uh, cultural diversity, and, and there's just a lot of a lot of exchange there. So I'll, I'll I'll pause there of the of my story, just to say that it's been a it's been an evolution. It's been a wild, crazy trip. It's been a journey. <laughs> <laughs> what's What's your experience with Zionism? Yeah, so mine mine is is a little bit different than a rabbi Rachel. One, I didn't go to Jewish day school, so I really um, you know I encountered. Uh, we talked about Israel in our Hebrew school, which is an, you know an after school program, but of course that was less intense. I did not know Hebrew. I still remember um, being in high school, and there was like we were, I was in a band, and I was playing um, a musical concert uh, at a, at a charity house. Um, and there was an Israeli family there uh, who was just there to receive medical care in America. And everyone knew I wanted to be a rabbi since I wanted to be a rabbi back then. And they, so they came up to me when they, the Israeli family was, how, how do you tell them that the food isn't kosher? And I, and, I, and, I, and I was like, oh, I actually have no idea how to tell this Israeli family the food's not kosher because, well, they only speak Hebrew. And I spoke zero Hebrew. That was my senior year of high school. Um, not enough to say yes or no. Um, so I didn't really know much. But eventually I did want to go to rabbinic school. I went to Jewish camp and I was a counselor, actually a mountain biking teacher at a Jewish camp. And because everybody at the camp um, at, at, uh, had gone to the camp for... You, you can't say you're a mountain biking instructor without saying your claim to fame. Oh, my claim to fame. My claim to fame was I sent the most amount of people. She wants me to say this. I sm- sent the most amount of campers to the hospital <laughs> of any different group because mountain biking is a dangerous sport. Every couple of weeks, the ambulance would come on, take notes. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. So I was a mountain biking teacher at, at camp and... Um, Almost all of the American staff um, were had gone to camp for years and years since they were kids. I had never gone to camp. I was just uh, there to there to teach to be a counselor. So I didn't really know anyone, and I really wanted to make friends. I was around eighteen, nineteen years old, and the only other people who were there were were what be the, what they call in uh, in camps a mishlachat or a delegation of Israelis, about fifty Israelis who are sort of flown in to be counselors for the summer, so that Jewish children can have an experience with actual Israelis, which is a fantastic thing. Um, and of course, they didn't know everybody. That group's different from year to year. So that's the group I sort of became friends with. So for like a full two two months of, of summer, of summer camp, I only hung out with Israelis uh, and they spoke Hebrew to each other. And for the first time, they took me hiking, um, which which I had never been hiking before, like a, a, a walk. A little, for, little Long Island boy. <laughs> yeah, you know, little Long Island boy. I, my, my mom really doesn't like bugs very much. We never went camping. We never like we I don't think I've ever actually been on a hiking trail until uh, this summer. Uh, you know, a, a walk in nature was like a walk in Central Park. Like that was what 
what we did. Nice paved road. A nice paved road. Like that was, I never understood hiking trails. Uh, hiking was something that, 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 other people did. That was something out there. I didn't realize I could do it. Um, but is, of course, Israelis, like the national pastime of Israel is basically hiking. Like Israelis love in general, uh, to hike. Uh, you know, it's very different out there. Um, and, uh, so when they came, of course, the Israelis wanted to explore America and our camp was up in the Berkshires, uh, right near the AT, right near the Appalachian Trail. So every weekend, uh, we'd go out hiking on our, our days off. Um, and it was just so, uh, fun. And what I realized about the Israelis um, is that they were very different than what I knew as an American Jews. You know, American Jews, I grew up here, uh, very intellectual, um, you know, kind of, for the most very indoor people. Of course, these are all generalizations that I experienced growing up in Long Island. Um, not exactly super strong and, uh, you know, kind of the Seinfeld version of Jew, of, of what it may, means <laughs> to Larry, be a Jew. Larry David. Larry David, Seinfeld, kind of, that was what I thought Jews were, right? And then all of a sudden, I met these Israeli Jews and like literally, um, these, these women, 18 or 19 year old women were right out of the army and they were literally like hiking up the AT with like flip flops on. I had never seen this, like up this huge mountain. I had my hiking boots and of course I had my, all my accoutrement. They were like, you know, if there was water, they would jump right into it. It was just a very different way of looking at reality. This love of nature that they had was unbelievable the way they appreciated nature and were thankful for what they had. And, and I think what most impressed me is just how strong they were and how willing to fight for whatever it was. Um, they were just extremely, extremely strong people. Didn't matter if they were men or women, uh, they were just extremely strong. And I also, the fact that they were just either were still in the military or I just got out of the military. I was like an 18, 19, I, I think I had started my first year of college or it was right before college or something like that. And here I was meeting like military veterans, um, you know, who are my age. And it really um, just hit me differently of like, wow, there's a different way to be Jewish. There's there's a way to be a strong Jew in the world who, who takes control of their destiny, who tries to uh, protect um, the the other Jews and and protect themselves and and this was very very important to me, um, so it really changed the way and, and and helped me to love Israel by meeting actual Israelis. Of course, I went to rabbinic school. I I spent actually two years living in Israel. Um, in rabbinic school because, well, I switched around to two different rabbinic schools and each rabbinic school had one year in Israel. So I spent two years in Israel. Um, and I loved those years. I loved getting to study Torah there and experience m- much of the similar experiences that Rabbi Rachel had. Um, we have the, that in common, you know, that, that unique culture, the unique way of being Jewish, the fact that, you know, it's not fall break in Israel. Uh, it's, uh, the high holidays. So they break for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur or, like everyone, or and Sukkot. Yeah, Sukkot. Everyone just goes, the entire country goes camping on Sukkot. It's amazing. Right, which is the way Sukkot should be spent, right? Um, uh, f- there's no spring break. There's Passover break, right? Um, we just we just uh, ended daylight savings here, and it reminded me that in Israel, uh, they wait to, they coordinate their, when they begin daylight savings to coordinate with the fast of Esther um, around uh, Purim because they want to make the fast shorter. So they either start it early or wait it late. It's depending on when the fast is. And like, right, the entire the entire country moves on this Jewish calendar. Right. And that, that's just, I mean, the fact that in the University of Minnesota, I mean, there was a big fight um, last year, two years ago, because school started, the University of Minnesota classes started on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, right? That's that's totally an American problem. That would never happen in Israel, and the schedule is built around. Uh, and it's amazing, as, as, an, as an American Jew living in Israel, you know, 
Christmas comes and there's no Christmas trees. And you would, you would like not even know that Christmas is happening. Um, usually probably because most of the time there's no snow. Um, uh, but, but, you know, of course you see tons of Hanukkah. It's unbelievable. Um, but, but no Christmas. And it's really, unless you go to places that are, where, that are, are Christian areas. All right. Nazareth, Bethlehem, that, that, those kind of things. Um, so regardless, I fell in love with Israel um, and, and, and loved it. And I, I have to say, I really felt, well, this is what I call, you know, the X factor. I, I really felt this mysterious presence of God in, in Israel and living there. I really felt a spiritual connection to God in a very different way. And I pray differently. Um, I learn Torah differently in Israel. Everything feels different. Eating feels different. Everything feels elevated higher, especially in Jerusalem, which is something that Rabbi Rachel and I both love, is, is the city of Jerusalem. Um, there is something unique about the way that God dwells in that city beyond all of the problems and beyond all the hardships and beyond all the realities. Um, God does dwell uniquely in, in, in Israel and especially in the holy city of Jerusalem. And I really, really felt that, and it was uh, really, really powerful for me. Lastly, I, I do want to say also as well, I did lead an interfaith trip to Israel with a Lutheran pastor uh, in my previous congregation. We spent one of the days going to something that I had never been to, which is is to go to Bethlehem. And, and Bethlehem is an area that right now is under uh, the Palestinian Authority, is run on by, under the governance of the Palestinian Authority, um, with also with uh, Palestinian military and, and police support as well. It's a place with huge signs in it that says, you know, Israeli citizens cannot go here. Um, if you go here, the Israeli government cannot protect you. Um, and so I'd never been to one of these places, obviously, because these signs were very um, scary <laughs> for someone living in a foreign country. Uh, and uh, so I never went, but I, I, I went to Bethlehem because, well, if you're going with Christians, you got to go to Bethlehem and got to see it. Uh, and uh, they want to go to the church there and everything like that. So I went for the first time to an area like that. And it really changed. It really had a serious impact on me because at the time I was uh, wearing my tzitzit or the my fringes of my uh, prayer shawl. Were, I would wear them all the time, and I'd wear them out, especially when I was in Israel, where that was very, it's very common. Um, and of course, I would wear my kippah, and I, w- I wore those. I was, the, I was I was serving as the rabbi on the trip. I was I wore them out, of course. Uh, I was there, and and I got there, and all of a sudden I was told I had to put my tzitzit away and I had to put my keep away. I couldn't show any visible signs that I was Jewish. Along the way, um, different uh, Palestinian vendors tried to sell Jewish goods to the people walking by as we walked our way to the church and tried to sell us all kinds of different Jewish menorah souvenirs and all this different kinds of stuff. And I was just getting, I was boiling inside because I was told I couldn't wear my kippah and it would be too dangerous for me to show any signs the fact that I'm Jewish. And remember, Bethlehem is only a couple miles away from Jerusalem um, in this place. Um, while they're busy selling menorahs and Jewish artif- and, and Jewish souvenirs. Um, and so I felt very frustrated. And finally, I got to the, the church in Bethlehem and I tried to go in. Uh, with my my the Christian group I was on an interfaith trip to Israel and support their journey, um, and of course it was the only church uh, in Israel that would not let me in unless I took off all head coverings. So at this point, I think a Torah leader had given me like a, like a, a hat or something to put over my kippa. Um, 
I don't go without my head with my my head uncovered. Um, and so they they were. This is the only church I'd been to. Many other churches in in Green Line Israel or Israel that's not in in what is considered the West Bank. And I was never asked, I was never forced to take everything off my head because they understood that I was Jewish. But there I, I was, I was, uh, they were trying to force me to take off my head covering. And finally, I just refused to go in the church. Um, and a couple of congregants followed me. And I never had felt in my life, um, honestly terrified to be a Jew um, and frightened. Um, I felt like any moment something horrible could happen. Um, I, I'd never been in a place where I had to hide my Jewish identity. And the fact that I had to do that only a couple miles away from Jerusalem really scared me um, and frightened me about what could happen. And I really, it, it brought me into this us, us versus them sort of mentality where it really felt like either, either this is my land or this is your land, right? And if it's your land, then it can't be my land. And I see what you're going to do. You're not going to let me be Jewish in that land. So therefore, it's going to be my land and I'm going to fight for it. And I think that really pulled me and said, I have to be stronger on this. Um, you know, I kind of took a step back from that, um, but it still lays on my heart and it's still a reality of the situation there um, is that, you know, we have to protect ourselves as Jews. It's, it's not, you know, not an easy place to be, that's for sure. Um, so those are some of the parts about my, my, particular, um, my particular Zionism. Um, so I, what I want to talk about is, we we obviously we obviously love Israel as we we spoke about, but there there are difficulties of of talking about it and sort of how how do we get through those difficulties? How do we sort of still talk about Israel and how do we deal with it in a way um, that that sort of makes sense? So like for example, right now there, there's been a uh, at least a particular um, MK who who's elected who we find to be absolutely honest with you, Rabbi Rachel and I find to be absolutely abominable, um, uh, an abomination. Um, a racist, um, a supporter of Jewish terrorists, um, everything like this. Um, so, what do you do with that? Like, how do you, how do you say, okay, I still support this country, even though they have 14 seats in in the Knesset? And, and I think one of the reasons why is I think we have to separate. Okay, there's the the state of Israel, there's the country itself, which I support, but then there's this particular government, which I have a lot of problems with, right? And that's okay. That's part of a democracy, right? There are going to be times when a particular government I don't like and I don't want there to be in, in government, but yet I still support the state, right? That's that's the difference. We do this in America all the time, right? And we should, and we have trouble doing it in America, but we need to be also be able to do it in Israel. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's the, for me, the same kind of like deep sadness, I remember, you know, to when when an American election, you know, when it feels like, wow, I, I just, I can't connect with the people in this country. Like, I don't understand. We, I feel, it feels like we're so far away. It feels like our values are so out of sync. Um, and there's that real deep sadness. Um, I feel the same way in Israel. You know, it feels like, wow, I mean, these, I feel connected to these people. And, and yet our values seem so out of sync with one another. Like how there's, there's that real deep emotional sadness. Yeah, yeah, it really exists. I mean, I, I would say the second thing also is to bear in mind always that that this is com- two completely different cultures, right? To be a Jew in America, uh, to be a person in America is is a completely different reality than to be a Jew or to be a human being in the state of Israel. They're they're they're, they're completely different, completely different, valuable cultures that should be held to be valuable, but are very, 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 very different. 
Um, and so we have to build those bridges between those two. And we have to understand that there's going to be misunderstandings between us all the time. There are going to be realities and parts we don't understand, uh, decisions that Israelis make that we don't get. And, and we sort of have to be like, well, we don't live there, right? We don't understand those realities in the same way they do sometimes. It's not a catch-all where everything is uh, off the table in terms of discussion, but it's something that we should keep in the back of our mind. Yeah, I mean, I think the balance between fighting for uh, the soul of the Jewish state and wanting to enact our values, I mean, egalitarianism is a big, um, you know, is a big factor. If we, um, you know, think about what the role of uh, women in religious life and conservative Judaism and kind of the values that we have dedicated our entire lives to and our entire careers to, um, how much do you, like, that? that is you know, in some ways, a very American and diasporic Judaism, um, you know, how, and how much do you push they, to try and, um, you know, push those values onto the Jewish state? And how much do you respect kind of the internal Israeli culture? It's a big challenge. It's a big, it's a big struggle. Yeah, really hard every day. Um, the other thing I would say also is, is, no, regardless of your political position, I think we can we should have an understanding that you know everyone should have basic human rights, right? Like, uh, no matter how much uh, I'm frustrated with some of the Palestinians that live in Bethlehem and how they made me feel that day, um, there's no bone in my body that thinks that they should not have water to drink and food to eat um, and and a, a clean uh, place to stay um, and shelter, um, and and they, they should not be subject to complete violence all the time. Um, and and same thing the other way. Right. Um, you know, no matter what your political view is or, or what you think, everyone deserves basic human rights. And I, I see this all. I saw this all the time. You know, um, there, there's there's fights over water and, and the Israeli government would be slow on making sure there are water for Palestinians in a certain village in West Bank. And 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 people would be uh, very frustrated about this. And, and I would be extremely frustrated about this because. Even if you don't think, let's say, that it's an illegal village or that Palestinians shouldn't be there in the first place, they're still human beings. They need water, right? You, I mean, like you gotta, they're human beings and you have to care for them. And, and you could have your political thoughts and your political identity and what you believe. Um, but that could be separate from making sure that all human beings are safe, right? And, and, and that's, that's extremely important. A lot of times you can bifurcate those issues. Um, I would also say, um, befriend actual Israelis, right? Like actually talk to real Israelis. And I'm, I'm not like, if online's the one thing you can do, then fine. But like actually in person, like have a real relationship with real Israelis and talk to them about their lives and their struggles and what they think. And it's a, and, and just, don't try to judge their views too quickly, but to just absorb them and understand them and, and try to understand their point of view, which is really serious. Um, of course, read and learn the facts as well, which is so important. Um, don't just rely on newscasts, but read real books, um, critical books um, uh, on both sides of these issues. And lastly, like, and this is true for everything that, that I think Rabbi Rachel and I say about, about Judaism, is, is it's complicated. It's not black and white. It's not like Israel's the best place in the whole entire world and always going to be perfect in everything they do. Or and and, and Israel's also not like the the worst place in the whole entire world, right? Like in the, the most horrible thing. It's gray, right? I think Israel's gray. I think Israel's a wonderful place, and and I think obviously Israel's very very positive and wonderful. But I wouldn't say it's without defect or without problems. Uh, there are a lot of problems, as there are with this country as well, and many other countries. And and hopefully we can all work together to to make it better all the time. Um, so that those things are are extremely important. Um, before before we end our episode for today, um, I do want to leave us with some kind of last uh, last I think thoughts that are really important to think about. Um, in this. Um, um, number one, um, 
I think that we all have to understand the fear, the fear that we all have. I mean, I remember my father um, growing up, and he was just absolutely sure that the Holocaust would happen again. I mean, this was not even, uh, not even a maybe it might happen again, but the Holocaust will happen again. And the question always was, is will we be prepared? Like, will we be better prepared this time? Will we have a state to protect us? Will we be able to rescue those Jews and make sure that there's a place that maybe we can go if we're in trouble, right? This was like sort of always on my father's mind. And um, it is one of the major, and again, this is a great example of political Zionism, right? Of like, we need to make sure that that place exists and do whatever we can. And and that's a valid, that's a valid. I mean, and I think, you know, there's one thing of your dad growing up in Brooklyn in the 1960s, but then I think, and, and then I think there was a intermediate period of our generation that felt like, oh, anti, you know, why do our parents talk about anti-Semitism so much? It doesn't exist anymore. We, you know, we're yeah. free and equal and, you Remember know, America's that? the golden <laughs> Medina and it's the, you know, it's the safe place. Um, and then in the last 10 years, I mean, that, I think that's that's really and profoundly changed. And um, we've seen that the, you know, anti-Semitism that was maybe lingering beneath the surface in some ways for, for much of our childhoods um, has become quite uh, quite out in the open and, and quite unabashed. And, and I think a lot of people in our generation have, have woken up to that and are experiencing the fear that we had laughed off of our parents' generation. Yeah. Really, a hundred percent. I think, unfortunately, we've been shown the reality of that. Whatever we and whatever we we, we think and, and political, we can have like political discussions all day long of like what the state of Israel should be and and what's the place and why do we need a state of Israel or is it really religiously correct to have a state of Israel at this point before the Mashiach comes? We can have that conversation. We can talk and have all these wonderful conversations. Should there be a state of Jews? Is, is the idea of there being a state for a particular religion a bad thing in the twenty first century? We can have that lovely debate. But the problem, uh, the, the the thing to bear in mind all the time is that there is a state of Israel. Right there's a state of Israel with millions and millions and millions of people living there who depend on it every day and have nowhere else to go. Right, and so it's not some figment of our imagination where we can say, "Oh, this is the kind of Israel." And if it's not like that, we just have to like seek to it that it's eliminated. That that means that what about all those people living there? Right, so we have to deal with the Israel that actually exists and understand that these are actual human beings' lives that we need to respect, and 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 we're, you know we're not just having some ideal. Uh, sort sort of debate here, which is which is so essential. So, I mean, conclu- concluding thoughts from you, Rabbi Rachel. Hi, concluding thoughts. There's yeah. no really no conclusion. Yeah, I don't know how you conclude this conversation except to say that we're still in this conversation. You know, we started by talking about the election, and um, that's real, and the um, discomfort, and the anguish, and the fear, and the disappointment that we feel, um, you know, post-election, that's all, that's all real and we're not walking away. And I think that's, that's the big takeaway is, you know, we're not walking away from this conversation. We're not walking away from the Jewish home. Uh, we're not walking away from the Jewish state. You know, we, I feel very strongly about my Jewish life here in America. I don't think I can live the Jewish life I want to live anywhere else. Um, and at the same time, I think there's incredible things happening in Israel um, that are making Judaism better. They're making Judaism deeper and better and stronger and more connected to God and more connected to one another and Hebrew. And, uh, you know, I just, there's, you, you, you kind of nailed it on the head. There's this X factor that you can't walk away from. Um, and maybe if you're looking just from the outside and have never experienced it and have, you know, then you, you might not understand, but 
um, once you've experienced that that X factor of the of Jewish life in Israel, it's hard. It's hard to walk away, and I don't think we ever can or should. Yeah, I think you know, for me, really, um, I'm a huge supporter of Israel um, and love love the state of Israel. Um, no matter you know the, which government is in charge at this particular moment, uh, I love the state of Israel. I see it as an essential um, need and a huge miracle that we live in a time when we have the state of Israel. Um, the political need, the cultural need, and really and truly, you know, the religious need uh, need as well, and the religious desire to experience God's presence in that unique way, um, and to be in that place, which is just absolutely, um, you know, unbelievable for that connection that we have to God and to each other as 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 Jews, um, and to see the the strength of Jews not saying, you know, I'm going to wait around until God saves me, um, but rather say, I'm going to take charge of my own destiny um, and God's going to be a partner with me in that holy work to t- but I'm going to um, help and work and and make this place better and 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 make sure that I'm safe uh, in, in that in that regard um, so of course uh, we always always uh, you know support the state of Israel hopefully uh, and obviously continue to support it and learn uh, more about it taking trips there and going there um, and and we we hope you will as well. Um, but even um, even if you struggle with Israel, I, I really hope that each and every one of you can, you know, sort of stay in stay in the conversation and stay in the relationship in that way, which is which is so 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 essential. And I am sure there are going to be many many more conversations about Israel that we have that are um, so going to be so important. Um, but this is at least a good start for us of sort of where we come from. Um, so just remember, of course, uh, the standard stuff here: rate, review, subscribe, comment <laughs> on our podcast. It really we helps. If you yeah, if you want to see your rabbis do a happy dance, leave us a leave us a review. It's really every time we get a, a new review or a new uh, rating on our podcast, it, it makes our day. So thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, sharing our sharing our podcast. Yeah, and like if you have any questions or thoughts about next episodes, questions, comments, concerns, whatever you want, the way you want to continue the conversation, please email us at livingjewishlypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love, love, love to hear from you. Our next episode, our next episode will be gratitude. And I know we said that our last episode was on gratitude, but then the Israeli election happened and we felt like we needed to talk about it. Um, But uh, gratitude is our next episode. It'll be coming out in about two weeks um, from now before Thanksgiving. Our episode will be out um, and really Jewish sources on gratitude, how gratitude sort of plays itself out in our life. Our thoughts about Thanksgiving. Do we like turkey or not? All these things will be answered in the next unbelievable episode of The Living Jewishly podcast. Thanks always to Colleen Deeker and Jeffrey Baldinger for an incredible theme song. Here they are. Oh, oh, come celebrate the words of Torah with Marcus and Ray.